this gravy was out of control. I didn't mean to make such an out of control gravy, but it was an out of control gravy. I didn't out I didn't, of control because of the quantity of butter in it, or just no? I didn't the, even have. I didn't even use any butter. It was actually all turkey fat and, and stock. So basically, like I didn't make a whole turkey. I just made a turkey breast, but I got the the butcher gave me like the bones and some other stuff along with the breast that he like cut off the bones for me and like portioned. And so I roasted those in the oven with uh, onions and carrots and stuff. And then I used that to make like a brown stock and that breast bones and stuff like I guess had a lot of uh, collagen in them or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It made a really gelatinous thing. So it's crazy. And I, and I actually had like two chicken thighs in my fridge that I had made like the night before, but they were, they had like a tie, like they were just like rubbed in brown sugar and stir fried, but they got like kind of spicy and I threw them in there and I used the Ruhlman turkey stock recipe that has a uh, tomato paste in it. So this stock, as it reduced, it turned into like kind of concentrated tomato-y like stock and then I kept like reducing it and reducing it and reducing it and reducing it like all day long and then I was like okay I'll stop and I had like two or three cups of it left down from like a cup two quarts or something like that I was like okay I can make pretty much anything out of this so then (laughs) I made hit I just made like a but sorry by that point I had taken the turkey skin off of the turkey breasts and I was roasting them like for the final part. So I just like rendered a bunch of turkey fat out of that turkey skin. And I used that turkey fat in the pan and diced a bunch of onions and uh, made the gravy out of that with roux with that. And then the stock added to that. So it was just like really turkey-ish tasting and really like really thick and brown and delicious and it was really good well, my mom never made gravy like she just used to serve basically like pan drippings you know like she would roast the bird and then like that was pretty much it she would just like separate it and whatever that was pretty much what got served kind of heated up and there was always like chunks of stuff in the bottom of it and that's really good since we're, I just made a turkey breast and I didn't really know how good it was going to be uh, I was like alright I'm going to go out and make like a dope gravy and it turned out good so there you go that's my gravy story Rye and Types, your favorite podcast about music, food, and programming. We are here recording late night, Saturday night. I guess it's not late night. It's late night for parents because it's 1030. It's not really that late. The the quiet storm. It's the quiet storm. You are just listening to uh, one of my new favorite tracks. This band, or actually really just a guy, but I think he records with uh, some live instruments. Um, called Floating Points, and the track is called Nest Pole. And it's just one of these smooth, jazzy, electronic kind of things that I've been really into lately, and it's just good, 
late fall, early winter music, I would say. I'm into it. I think it's one of my favorite albums this year, so it's cool. Mike and I each had our own Thanksgivings with families and friends, and we're recording this Saturday after Thanksgiving, and we were just talking about gravy stories. I think everyone should know that Aaron really likes like smooth music. Like People might not really know that about you. <laughs> kind of deceptive thing i mean i do too it's just that you know you really you like smooth you like i like i like music smooth smooth jams are awesome you know i really like the yacht rock smooth you know like early early 80s late 70s rock music pop rock music i love that that's pretty smooth i love me some you know smooth like high-tech hip-hop beats those are always good Man, oh shit. So speaking of music, uh, speaking of hip-hop beats, I was listening to RDO, R.I.P. RDO. That sucks. I, we, I think we talked about that on the Forgotten... Uh, <laughs> the uh, on the Forgotten episode. On the Veggie Burger episode. No one will ever know what that means. Um, and there's uh, People's Instinctive Travels and the Lives of Rhythms remaster reissue thing on there or whatever. And there's like a... Pharrell Williams remix of Benita Applebaum and we were like oh yeah we should listen to that and then like four seconds into it we're like no we should not listen to that (laughs) it's a bad combo it's too smooth speaking of smooth it's kind of the wrong kind of smooth Pharrell's dope but this it's it's too smooth for that shit you need the q-tip like little scratch you need like the little bit of all those old because he's digging up all these dusty old jazz records you need that little it's a really cool album it's very uh it's it's really minimal you know i i kind of hadn't listened to it in a long time i was listening to some of the jams today on the way uh i was riding around taking care of some errands and i was listening to some other the tracks and they were they were dope there's that that shit's fucking amazing that's kind of it's very simple also very complex and yeah minimal just like kind of one sample what one loop yeah he does the very like both of both the tropical quest rappers are doing the very like 80s style (laughs) but then he like breaks into his flow a little bit and then i was listening to the velvet underground uh like the complete matrix tapes thing uh that got reissued that's crazy there's just this version of uh Candy says, or something. One of the brothers, he just sings, sings like completely different, one hundred percent like different lyrics than he's ever sung on like any other version of the song Lou Reed before. It's pretty cool. So yeah, that sucks. I'm gonna miss that service. It's kind of a cool service. I guess I'll Spotify myself, Spotify my innards. Got a Spotify tattoo. It works. It has most things. I was like thinking about this the other day that I used to be really, really proud. I mean, I still like you know have records and I still have a bunch of CDs here and there and but I used to be like really proud of my like you know mp3 collection <laughs> and that's just like you know kind of gone now I have like I mean it's still there somewhere on a hard drive somewhere but you know I had a pretty deep collection and some of my friend my friend our friend Cronenberg um shout out to Cronenberg has like you know Spotify has a bunch of great music on it has a lot of like you know it has like the 80 percentile of like what you want from music but my friend Kronberg has been collecting hip-hop for like decades now and hip-hop cds that like people have forgotten about 
as much as he can every like major label or even like minor imprint hip hop release from the past 25 years or 30 years. And then he goes in and he like tags every single song with producer information, what year it was released. Like even if it was like a cover, sometimes even like what the song was sampled by. And so I kind of missed that, that feeling of having that collection. Cause it was awesome to be able to like sort all hip hop by like everything recorded in 1996 not that that won't happen, you know, at some point on these services, but still. Yeah, I mean, it might be a cool thing to talk about. I don't know if everyone knows, but like the first exposure that I had to downloading other people's music, there used to be these in the in the like mid to late 90s. There were basically like networks of ways to distribute like open FTP access, you know, credentials. So you would like people would like you would like chat in chat rooms and talk on mailing lists and stuff and you would get access to people's servers and then you would basically just be like browsing their server which was often like a computer at their house like under their desk or something like that because this is like you know there was no cloud for everyone to like have their shit stored on or anything like that the cloud the cloud you would literally browse to their computer with an ftp program and like download the albums of theirs that you wanted and like you know you would have to maintain like certain upload download ratios and all this kind of stuff and it spawned all these like other alternate protocols that people were using and other programs that eventually like turned into napster and all that other kind of stuff when people figured that ftp like wasn't the best way to be doing it (laughs) but it is really cool that that's like how the whole thing started like me and my friends used to basically just like ftp into like all these other people's computers and like download like large sections of their collections and that's where i got and heard like a lot of stuff for the first time because prior to that everything was physical so it wasn't really easy to just like hear stuff so that was cool my friend maintained like uh one of these like kdx servers pretty actively and up until like a couple of years ago uh, where he had just like a gigantic collection of avant-garde and like out and ear- interesting like music of all kinds on this giant server that you could go and download stuff on but it got taken down yeah that's sad yep well yeah i mean it's just how it is but now you can get whatever the fuck you want i mean yeah you know if I could have YouTubed all that shit back then, I just would have, but there was no YouTube. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day too. Yeah, we, you know, beyond beyond the what our current services look like, because obviously there's going to be a generation beyond this where it's like Spotify to me still seems like an, in, like it, it works and audio works, but they seem like an in-between step to something beyond that, which is just like all music basically and some way to access that as opposed to this like very you know, good and large, but, you know, still pretty specific layer on top of what, what people will allow on it. And so I wonder what it's going to be like, you know, like what, what are the, what are the discovery mechanisms when there's no constraints other than like your ability to find something? I guess that's kind of what the global internet could look like at some point, but like what we, the way we discover music is going to be vastly different from the way I discover music now and our, our, the next generation and everything discovers music. But like, what, like, what are the mechanisms when you don't, when there aren't any constraints, like you like literally can find any music or any piece of information at, at the drop of a hat. That's an interesting question. It'd be cool to have someone, uh, 
qualified on to show the answer <laughs> or a question like that. But I think, I mean, I think fundamentally there's, it, it, it kind of turns into like a, an interface problem, like a, a recall problem, a query problem. Like how do you find the stuff that's relevant to like what you're looking for? Just because you have everything doesn't mean you have like a good way to find things within that collection. And uh, as long as there are like, older siblings and like older people at school that like have tastes in things and like tell you what to listen to, then essentially like the fundamental folk tale kind of way that music taste is transmitted from generation to generation isn't necessarily impacted. I, I guess, I guess a, a explicit question about it is like, what does connoisseurship look like when you have access to everything, you know, because part of I feel like part of like being a connoisseur and an expert or like a a taste leader and stuff now is part of the ability and the rarity of something, you know, kind of makes it more valuable and your knowledge about that more valuable. So when that entire thing is taken away, what's what's left, I guess just the music itself not really i guess it's still there's still some mechanism there but i think the idea that connoisseurship is associated with like having a good collection of stuff is kind of maybe a more modern idea although maybe maybe not i'm not really sure it's interesting i've met young i've met young people with good taste and they manage to somehow have good taste even though like they're constantly being assaulted with a barrage of bullshit like all day long you know for their entire (laughs) lives and you know they're somehow able to like still be human beings and you know recover some semblance of humanity out of all that which is kind of a remarkable feat in and of itself i think if you think back to like when we were kids like you know you make certain choices and you get access to stuff that you know you kind of had to go out of your way to get access to in other words i think there's always going to be those kind of people that just kind of like find that path who was your music mentor as a kid I mean, my brother showed me a lot of stuff. Uh, Matt uh, and I kind of showed each other a lot of stuff. He showed me a lot of stuff through other people that he met. I had like a group of older friends in high school who were like seniors when we were in high school who were into like, they were in like the punk and hardcore scene. And that's where I learned about like running your own record label and putting on shows and all that kind of stuff. So I like promoted my first punk show and I was like, you know, 16 or whatever. And I learned that from like all those guys. And that's where I learned about like underground music and that kind of community DIY stuff or whatever. And then in college, I had a friend, Chris, who lived on the same floor as me, who like was really into record collecting. And then I got really into record collecting, like for real, like with this dude in more modern times, my friend Samara Lubelski had like a really big uh, impact on my music taste actually randomly because we spent a couple weeks, me and her and mine and a bunch of other people like spent a couple random weeks like touring in the summer with Double Eppers and she was playing at a band hall of fame that we toured with and had all these mixtapes and she would play all these mixtapes and refused to tell anyone what any of the songs were and she's like oh, you'll you'll figure it out you'll figure it out eventually like you'll learn what it is one day and you'll be like oh that's what that song is and that's actually like continued to happen and that was like f- almost 15 years ago at this point uh so i learned a lot of cool records from her and from chris gray and marcia bassett and and all those all those music all those music people so i've had lots of people teach me 
a lot about music uh, throughout my life. I've been really, I've been really lucky in that way. How about you? I like didn't really, I was into pretty shitty music until like sixth or seventh grade when I one discovered my, my parents old record collection and like had them reset up the record player and listen to all the music that they had, which is mainly my dad was like, mainly into classical music so it wasn't really my dad it was mainly my mom's collection which was like you know like all the classic folk and rock music of the 60s like woodstock era music basically that she was obsessed with i love that and then from there uh when i got to like end of middle school i went to a bunch of like sleepaway camps and all these kids at sleepaway camps i mean i i knew about hip hop and all that stuff like but that was like pop music it was just like on i like knew about that it wasn't i wasn't aware of like you know i guess there wasn't as much of an underground then anyway either but like i wasn't aware of like the good stuff until like that i went away to camp and um a couple kids had you know wu-tang and tribe called quest records and i was like oh this is cool (laughs) from there it was like once i got to college there was like a bunch of people who i became friends with who were like besides my friend Cronenberg, who I was talking about before, like who like really just were obsessed with finding like the most obscure early rock music and like, and like power pop. They were like super into like obscure power pop music from the early eighties. And so that like, that definitely led me into my smooth phase, which has continued until now, I guess (laughs) you can say. Um, But yeah, it's cool. Like, my cousin Abby too was always like a huge influence me on me in like a huge number of ways that she probably doesn't even isn't aware of because she's like nine years older and even though she grew up in Connecticut in the suburbs she was like always really into cool things like punk and comic books and she's a comic book artist now and author and she and her brother younger brother Mikey definitely got me into comic books in in high school and beyond or middle school and high school she was just always like way into way cooler things than me and it's kind of funny now because we're like both just adults and married and everything but definitely when i was a kid she seemed like such a rebel and so cool so anything that she she picked up i was like oh okay i should probably figure that out and so listening to all (laughs) this like she was in a bunch of bands too that put out a bunch of tapes and i so i was really into the music that they made which is like some kind of like weird cartoon punk stuff that she was really into but yeah, anyway, <laughs> everyone cool. has like, I'm sure has some kind of relative that they're like, or older friend that they're in awe of, right? Oh yeah, totally. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, that's a lot of how musical folklore knowledge uh, gets transmitted and has gotten transmitted for a long time. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll still happen, hopefully. All right. Well, what else is on your mind? What about bagels? You've been trying to make bagels. We could, we, you can rubber, you can rubber duck some of your bagel problems. Uh, so I think <laughs> uh, bagels. bagels. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. Like you know, we've talked about this before, but pizza and dough making is has definitely always been like a gateway drug for me in terms of getting me like addicted to trying to figure out these other dough things because each kind of dough is like its own little world and so bagels is something i've always wanted to pursue because there's not good access to good bagels where i live anymore 
and that's a problem because i love bagels the bagel i, I figured bagels were going to be hard to replicate at home but i didn't really think about like how hard because actually i've been making bialis for a long time now and bialis which i think i was thinking about we should definitely put a recipe for bialis in the book because you can totally make bialis with pizza dough and it totally works bagels are like a whole other thing from bialis because one the ones i'm making at least are sourdough to like the rolling it's like a much stiffer and more intense dough and then actually shaping and rolling them is super challenging to get right but it's also super important because then you have to boil them and what's been happening every time that i've been making them is they look fine and then they kind of hit the water and they're just too wet and loose and then they just kind of deflate and then when i bake them they turn into like flagels there the crumb is actually super open which is the interesting thing they're just like kind of flat like shape wise so they're like super soft they're super chewy the flavor is amazing like they're the best tasting bagels i've had in a long time but they're like flat the outside is crispy and chewy and golden from the malt syrup so like what i think i've narrowed it down to is like because of the sourdough starter that i'm using is the same sourdough starter i use for like the country loaf that I make, I'm pretty sure the dough has to be a lot stiffer. Like it's too wet. I'm adding too much water because I'm compensating for the stiff starter. And what ends up happening is they're just too wet and then they don't retain their shape because it's too hard to build tension in such a wet dough, basically. And so then when it hits the water, they just kind of fall apart. Are they the right? It could be a temperature thing too. I wonder. Are the, what what temperature are they when they go into the bath? Are they they're that's like right after proof, so they're room temperature. Or no, what? they're cold. They're cold they're when cold. they go into the bath. Yeah, because so what I've been doing is I've synthesized two recipes together, or more like three. They're like three recipes that I've been trying because none of them were for like the type of starter that I was maintaining. So there's the uh, Hamelman bread bagel recipe and then there's a nancy silverton bread la brea bakery breads recipe which is a famous one and then there's the peter reinhardt crust and crumb bagel recipe and all three of them have similar ratios but different procedures and the hamelman one is not sourdough and now there is the reinhardt one actually they're both those are both yeasted but with like a poolish and so I've been looking online. I've been doing all this research. I think I, I think I think that's the last step. Because at first, like the other thing was happening was it was just completely flat, and I shaped them improperly, and they just fell apart. I fixed that problem. I got the shaping kind of down. It's just the building tension. I think bread's hard, man. There's so many fucking variables, and bagels are even bigger because you have this extra boiling step, which totally like changes the game. Kind of, it's what makes them good. It's what makes them bagels. But it's like I love bagels. I haven't made them in a while. I should make them again. They're very hard to make. I, my tips were always keep them as small as possible because smaller ones seem to work really well. And then make sure the gluten is, you know, really strong. I, I, I think having like if you were struggling with shaping, it makes sense that it would go wrong during the boil too. Yeah. So it sounds yeah. like you need something drier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm going to try to like reduce the... I, like I'm changing one variable at a time. What percentage of uh, starter are you using? 
So it's like a, it's similar to the, I like basically took the Nancy Silverton one recipe and just adjusted it so that the way she built her starter is very different from the tartine other style that I've been using, which is the tartine style is you keep like a very small starter and then you build a Levain out of it. And the Levain is also like kind of small too. Hers is like you build it up over like four days and it becomes like a three pound starter. And then, which is basically, but it's basically just the starter is like a, actually like a small part of that. It's basically like just a giant Levain and not, and it's mostly white flour too. It's not like half whole wheat, like the tartine one. Like I basically took the same ratio of flour and water from hers, but I think it's just because it ends up being like her, hers ends up being like, 60 percent about or 65 water but hamelman and reinhardt are more like 50 55 if i remember correctly and that seems more right like now that i'm looking at it just like i think it's just because hers is like mostly in that fermented starter whereas mine is added afterwards i don't know there's so many variables i'm trying to like narrow it down so next time the only thing i'm going to change is i'm going to do the same thing again same boil process same proofing process same rolling but just reduce the water by like 15 percent and see what happens um just so that basically just enough water so that it comes together into like a firm but like malleable dough but that's it beyond that nothing else the yeasted ones are predictable so i just make yeasted ones and they're good <laughs> yeah it's just like i ha- i love the flavor of the sourdough and it tastes so good and like you don't need a lot to flavor it like i made it like what I actually did now that I, I'm like thinking about it because I made it, I made them a couple times when I was keeping a starter and they are wet. Although what you're describing is different because my final product was a little bit wetter, but that might have to do with the fact that your oven is like a lot better than mine was probably. Anyway, I ended up doing like the whole Hamelman recipe or the Reinhardt recipe, whichever one it was. I think I liked the Hamelman one the best, although I might be getting that confused because I think I like the Hamelman Bialy recipe actually, but anyway, it doesn't the matter. The Hamelman Bialy recipe is the best for sure. I just used 10% uh, sourdough starter and basically like didn't do anything else pretty much different from the recipe, just like compensated for the moisture and it, like they tasted like sourdough and they weren't a pain in the ass. and They just worked. So you might just want to do that. We'll see. I'll tell you. The one thing I will say that I figured out this week, which had been killing me, was I finally made really good tortillas, and that was great. Do you roll them out, or how do you make, how do you roll them out? I have a tortilla press, which I which I received as a Christmas gift at one point, <laughs> and uh, I had been struggling with it. And I don't know, like this is a like this might have just been my experience, but no one has like a solid. No one had like a solid like oh this is the ratio of like water to masa harina that you need because I I don't have fresh masa by me. I'm sure I could actually find it if I like really searched. So the masa harina and water ratio, I was trying to figure that out, and I there's like this great Diane Kennedy, um, tor- the tortilla book, which is like an old. Mexican cookbook from the 80s that Diane Kennedy put out, which is really good. And so I was using hers and it worked out pretty well, but they were always just like a little too wet and they would always stick to everything. And then I was like, recently I was like, I want to do this again. And I got Alex Tupac's new tacos book, which is amazing and everyone should get. It's really good um, if you're into tacos. It's basically the pizza book of tacos. (laughs) That's what it is. (laughs) Um, 
except written by an actual chef um, who, who makes tacos. And his tortilla recipe sounded amazing, and he has a lot of detail about it. I tried his ratio, and it just, like, completely didn't work. And I think, I don't, like, I don't know if it was just my batch or whatever, but I was using this Bob's Bob's Red Mill Masa Harina, which I was like, oh, it's organic, it's freshly ground, whatever, but it's super coarse. And so when I was, like, using it, it just, like, didn't work. And, like, it didn't come together at all. Like, the dough didn't even, I just had to throw the whole thing out. The dough didn't even come together, like, oh. on multiple occasions. Yeah, the it was, masa like, super that I've coarse. had is, like, the masa I've had is, like, flour. Yeah, yeah, it's flour, which is weird. But the, the Bob's Red Mill one, or at least the batch that I had, was, like, this coarse. Maybe they mis- maybe it was just cornmeal and they mislabeled it. But then I just got, like, maseca, like, masa harina, like, you know, the thing that you find in any Mexican grocery or, like, in the ethnic aisle of your Hannaford's grocery store. It worked out. The ratio that Alex Tupac had, it worked out fucking great. And I made, and, it, and like, they weren't sticky at all. They they just, like, came together, cooked them on the griddle, and they're great. And I was super stoked. And so now I'm making tortillas every week for sure. It was super easy to do once it actually started rolling. Throw some fucking taco filling in there and it's delicious <laughs> throw some fucking taco filling in there <laughs> that sounds good i saw your i saw yours they look delicious i want to make some i'm gonna order that shit i'm gonna one click order that shit can they get it down to zero clicks one click seems like a lot of clicks <laughs> yo amazon hooks me up with the zero click put put the buy now button in my mind cool i just ordered some books i ordered some books live on the podcast so you ordered the taco book what other books did you you order multiple books or just that i ordered the peter mian book and the mission chinese book mission chinese the mission chinese cookbook is amazing everyone should get it even if you don't love the food and you don't care about the recipes like they the whole narrative of the whole book is really awesome uh, similar to the Mission Street Food cookbook, which is a couple years old now, but was also really great because it's just one of these like improbable stories that of something that just happened and ended up being amazing. And Kung, pa- Kung Pao pastrami recipe, obviously, mm. got to get that. Needs to make that shit. All right, yo, I'm getting tired. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for the quiet storm. The quiet storm. No veggie burgers allowed episode. We should also say that the pizza book got funded, which the is pizza book got f- funded plus. So we're as make, of we're right making, now, we're making a pizza book. We're pe- we're fucking book authors. We have seven hundred seven hundred and forty five backers for a total of thirty three thousand four hundred thirty three dollars with nineteen days to go. So thank you for everyone who has supported us. It's so awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, shit. If we're going to make a book, then we're probably going to fucking make another one. So watch out for that. <laughs> yeah, and, watch, uh, out. watch out for book two. It's already watch out for book two. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. I uh, hope you have a great week, and we will see you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>